Dennis Kinlaw was a professor of Old Testament history, theology, and languages. He had the ability to make the Word of God come alive, and we believe wholeheartedly in the power of God's Word to change lives through the Holy Spirit. We hope this message will quicken your interest in God's redemptive story. The text I want to use this morning is a very important text in the life of Jesus. It comes at a pivotal place in his life for himself and also for his disciples. I want to read for you from, and it's a familiar passage, but I want to read it for you in its full extent because it's more important than what I've got to say. It is found in Matthew. One of the accounts is in all the synoptics. One of the accounts is in Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13, and it is the experience of Jesus with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great sufferings at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it. Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. The reality is, what he said was basically, you don't think the way God thinks, you think the way man thinks. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, 
There's some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray just a moment. Now, Father, we would not come to your word without humbly asking you to give us your spirit to help us understand and to interpret, so that be through the words and behind the words we hear the voice, the very voice of the living God as he speaks to us, our Father, to his children. And we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. As we said before the scripture, this is a pivotal passage in the life of Jesus. In fact, I think it's a very tender moment because Jesus now takes his disciples and carries them apart so he can be not with the crowds, but so he can be with those twelve. You find this recorded in all three of the synoptics. If you will take the Markan account particularly, which I know in my head a little better, uh, you will find that immediately the stories shift from being about Jesus to about the disciples. And through 8 and 9 and 10, you get these stories of Jesus with his disciples as the disciples find out what they are like as they live very intimately with Jesus. Now, uh, it's a pivotal point because the first part of Christ's earthly ministry is over. Because the thing that he had to teach them first and had to be learned first was who he was. And you will notice that when Peter says, yes, we know who you are. You are the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. His identity is now established. They're not dealing with a prophet. They're not dealing with simply the greatest man that ever lived. They're dealing with the person who is the fulfillment of Israel's history and existence. He is the one for whom Israel has been waiting. He is the one for whom they have been waiting. Right here in the flesh, they have in front of them the one who is the fulfillment of human history and the reason for the creation. And so it's a very significant moment. And so... uh, he now has to turn his attention to the next lesson that has to be learned. And that is why he came. Because their notion of why he came and what was in his head, the two notions were miles apart. Just like oftentimes what's in our minds about the purposes of God is very far from what is in the mind of God about the purposes of God. Now he must turn attention to how this story is going to end. It's very interesting to me that he spent, as best I can figure, about two and a half to little more than two and a half years with the disciples, very intimately. And do you know he's never told them about the cross? Now you know, uh, according to my thinking. When he called him, he should have taken him off in the corner and said, Now, boys, let me tell you what this is all about. But he didn't do that. The first thing was that personal knowledge of and relationship to himself had to be established. And now he takes them apart, and that's why they separate from the crowds. And that's why these next six months are primarily a relationship with the twelve in which he's saying, Boys, I want to tell you how this story is going to end. 
It's not going to end the way you expect it to end. In fact, it's going to end in what for you would be disaster and absolute failure. Because I'm going to be taken over by the priests, chief priests, the temple, the authorities. I will suffer at their hands, will be crucified, will die, but I will rise again. Now, uh, he begins to tell them about the cross and the why of the cross, the eternal purposes of God. Now, it's, he, he makes it very significant because you will notice he says to Peter, uh, you, you all now have the keys to the kingdom. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Now, we've stayed away from that passage because of what I think is a misunderstanding of that passage by the Roman Catholic Church. But uh, the fact somebody's misunderstood Scripture should not cause us to back away from it. We should look at it a second time to see. He, what he is saying is that what we are talking about is eternally significant. It has to do with the eternal destiny of all things. And that word loose could be also delivered, redeemed. Uh, so he says, what you, what you redeem will be redeemed in heaven. And what you bind will be bound, will not be redeemed, will not be free. What you liberate will be liberated. And what you don't liberate will be bound and will be of course, lost in eternity. So he is saying, now we're getting down, not to healing a sick person, giving sight to a blind man, feeding the multitudes that's hungry. Now we're getting down to what it's all about, the eternal purposes of God, and it's going to take a cross to do that. Now, uh, it's uh, very interesting that uh, he is indicating here his concern for his world. You know, I learned John 3.16 very early in my life uh, and could quote it with ease, for God so loved the world. But you know, as I get older, that gets more incredible to me and more incredible to me. Because how much does God care about the world? Do you know who is standing in front of Peter and James and John? It's a person just like you and me. A person that can suffer pain, shed blood, and die. He's a human being. But he is also the second person of the eternal blessed trinity. And you've got a God-man on your hands. Now, I don't know about you, <laughs> but do you know the world in which that was spoken, for, the, for that world, it was incredibly radical. Because if you read the death scene of Socrates, who was considered the wisest man that Greece ever produced, he's getting ready to drink the, drink the hemlock, and his buddies are say they're so sad, and he says, "Why are you so sad? This is a wonderful moment. I drink the hemlock, and I get rid of this stuff. I'll be free when I can get rid of my body." And in the womb of the Virgin Mary, 
the second person of the eternal trinity, wedded him to what Socrates wanted to get rid of. But what shocks me is, the eternal God wedded himself to his creation for eternity, at least the rest of eternity. Because do you know when Jesus ascended into heaven, he took a body with him. And when you and I get there, we'll find their scars in his hands. And the God who is without body or parts and who is eternal spirit wedded himself to physical creation. Because, you see, he came to redeem his creation. Now, I believe souls need to be saved. <laughs> and we are, that's our business. But God's going to save his creation. And that is part of what's in this context here. Now, uh, he cares about his world. He cares incredibly. If I knew how to say that right, we'd be on our faces in adoration and praise of a God who cares about us that way so much that he became one of us. He didn't save us by offering us a gift or performing a miracle and zapping us and doing something for us. Do you know how he saved us? By doing something to himself. Now, I wish I knew how to say that. You see, when I see somebody that isn't what he ought to be, I ought to say, David, you just straighten up and fly right. This organization could be what it ought to be. But now what did God say? Poor David. We need help. So where do we start? We surely don't start with him because he can't help us. We start with me. And so God said, I have to change if my, if my creation is to change. Because the key to the salvation of my creation Rest not in the creation, it rests inside me. And so now God has taken on himself human flesh as a creature to redeem us. Now, uh, it's interesting the way he does it is he takes a part for the, to get to the whole. He doesn't start out and make a change in the whole world. He starts with a, a fetus in the womb of the virgin to get to the last bit of human existence. I think it's significant. He starts with a part to get to the whole. I notice that that's the way he still works. He starts with a part. There are some magnificent passages in the Old Testament where God looks for one person. And he says, if I can find one person, my circumstances are different. And so he moves from the part to get to the whole. I've often wondered if the key to every organization doesn't primarily rest in a single heart, and that's the person who's the leader. Or in a department, in a single heart, that person who's the leader. Because what happens there makes possible what happens down the line. And so what happens in Jesus makes possible redemption in you and me. But he starts with a part and goes to the whole. Now, uh, 
the uh, disciples, he has to change all of their thinking because they don't think this way. You see, uh, Peter immediately said to him when Jesus mentioned the cross, God forbid, uh, this is unthinkable, this is uh, uh, really uh, highly offensive theological fault for you to think this way, Jesus. And we've been correct, trying to correct God ever since. And uh, God, Jesus has to change their thinking. Now, uh, what is it that happens inside God for us to change? It's an identification with us in which our problem becomes his problem. And until our problem becomes his problem, there is no hope for us. But when our problem becomes his problem, he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we who know no righteousness might become the very righteousness of God, as Paul said. Until our problem becomes his problem, there's no hope for us. But that's his love, that he looks at our problem. And what does he do? He doesn't solve it at a distance, but he solves it inside himself. And it is what happens in the body of Christ and in the soul of Christ that, that makes it possible for us to be redeemed. You know, uh, that's the reason for the emphasis on the blood. Because, you know, blood's very physical. <laughs> and you don't have blood without a body. And you don't have a body that's alive without blood. And you'll find the New Testament says that it was in his flesh that he saved us. What happened? He took into himself our situation. Now, there is an interesting conclusion that comes from that to me. And that is that the key to everybody is in somebody else. Now, I wish I knew how to say that right. But now, to me, it is a biblical principle. And as a biblical principle, it is applicable universally. The key to every person is in somebody else. And there's a lot of data to support that. There's not a person in this crowd who decided to live. The fact that you exist is true because two other people made a decision. So it was the decision in two other people that brought you into existence. So your very existence started in the mind and in the heart of two other people. Now, the key to your existence, the key to your sustenance, the key to who you are, what's your name? You didn't grow up and become an adult and say, I believe I'll take the name, whatever your name is. You your identity comes from your relationship with others and your relationship with those two people that decided in their heart and make a decision that brought you into existence. Now, if that is true physically, it is equally true spiritually. People don't suddenly stand up one day and say, I believe I will become a Christian today. If you bump into somebody who tells you that, Get them to sit down and make them talk a little while. <laughs> and what you'll find is that there's a story. And it's what happened in somebody else that made it possible 
for that person today to look at you and say, I've decided to become a Christian, will you help me? You see, that comes out of the nature of the triune Godhead. We're made in his image. Because do you know what a son is? A son is a guy who has a father. <laughs> and he can't be a son if he doesn't have a father. But what is it makes a person a father? You can't be a father if you don't have a child. So a father's identity is found in his child, and a child's identity is found in his parents. The key to every person is in somebody else. So what happens in another person is what makes possible what happens inside you. And so Jesus is saying, I've got to go to the cross. I'll suffer. I'll die. Then I'll be raised. And what happens inside me will determine your possibilities. Now he says, if any man wants to follow me, you know, I read that thing 60-some years without seeing the irony in that. You know who he's talking to? <laughs> he's talking to guys that left their homes, their families, their jobs, their security. He was talking to fellows who had, for two and a half years, left everything they had to follow this guy who's saying to them, now, if you'd like to follow me, when I get to heaven, I want to get Peter to one side and say, what would you do at that point? And I think he's going to say to me, well, James and John and I looked at each other and said, is he crazy? Who does he think we are? We're the 12 people in the world who are following him. And he says, now, if any man wants to follow me. But you see, now he's talking about following at a deeper dimension. And he says, let him, if he wants to follow me, deny himself. Because there's still a good bit of self in Peter. There's still a good bit of uncrucified self in John. And so now he's getting to a deeper dimension. And he said, if you really want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and do what? You've got to do what I do. <laughs> if you're going to follow me, you've got to follow me. And I'm headed for a cross. And I choose it for you. Now, you've got to choose a cross. But for whom are you choosing a cross? You may think you're choosing it for me, but if you choose it right, the choice will be for somebody else. Because you see, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And that binding and loosing will take place deep within your spirit. When you lose yourself to find yourself, then there will be eternal consequences. And heaven's rich story will be the result of people like you. We start with a part, and it's the sun. And then we start with another part, and it's the twelve. 
And then we start with another part, and it's the 3,000. And he keeps starting with parts. And from those parts flows that stream, the river of life that the world so desperately needs. Now, the interesting thing to me is <clears throat> that with that, what you get is a very different understanding of how a Christian is supposed to live. That what you have is that when we are crucified, something fresh is born within us. It's not just a correction of our lostness and of our fallenness, our twistedness, and our pervertedness. That takes place. But there is that divine flow that begins to come through. And it's a two-way flow. You see, it was a two-way flow for Jesus, because he himself who knew no sin became sin. He took our need into himself. And as he took our need into himself, it became possible for God's answer to go through him to us. Now, uh, that uh, makes some passages in the New Testament significant to me that I used to read and say, yes, that's nice. But now they sort of haunt me. It's interesting what we've done with the book of Romans. Most of us think it's about justification by faith and the Reformation. And if we get that clear, then we understand Romans. But you know, I've decided Romans is a book. And after chapter 5, you really don't hear a great deal about justification by faith. Now, you hear enough about it before, you better pay attention to it. It's there. But you get it more than that. And you get to the conclusion, and he gives you his conclusion. I want to give you his conclusion. Those of us who know more than others, our translations usually translate that strong. But what it means is those who understand more and know more of grace ought to put up with the misunderstandings and the lacks of the weak those who don't know as much as we. Now, you've got people who don't know what they ought to be and are not what they ought to be. Do you start with them? No, you start with the people who do know more and the people who are an answer. Okay. Each of us must what? Those of us who know more. Not please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. I should live to please you, not so you can control me. That's a carnal relationship, or simply to get your approval. But how should I please you? I should please you because Christ did not please himself. Now, how was it that Christ did not please himself? As it is written, the insults 
of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written, it's a quotation from the Psalms, in former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, what's Paul saying? Chapters 12, 13, 14, 15 have one theme. And it's a motif that just runs through it like a theme in a Beethoven symphony. And what it is, is agape love. And agape love is where I don't love you for what you can do for me. I love you because I can do something for you. God doesn't love us because we can do anything for him. God loves us because of what he can do for us. It is that kind of love. And so he says that the close, the close of Romans 12 to 15 is like 1 Corinthians 13 in 1 Corinthians. Okay. He is saying, and now by faith, hope, love. Love is the conclusion of the book of Romans. Begin with chapter 12 and you'll find it repetitively through. Now the climax. So you don't live to please yourself. That's the proof that you have divine love in you. That you don't live for yourself. Now how is that manifested? The reproaches that fall on you come on me. In other words, your burden becomes my burden. And when your burden has become my burden, then I have fulfilled the law of Christ. Now, if uh, that's a little uh, different way of saying it, let me read this for you from the tail end of Galatians chapter 6. He's finished that fifth chapter with the emphasis on the Spirit. We separated with a, with a chapter heading and there was no, wasn't there in the Greek. We're not supposed, we, if we live by the Spirit, let us also be led by Him. Not to be conceited, competing against one another or envying one another. My brothers, my friends, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who haven't fallen, you're the ones who are supposed to restore such a one. Somebody's fallen, where do you start? You don't start with him, you start with us, the ones who have not. And so he says, take care that you yourselves are not tempted, and then this, bear one another's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Did you know I can take the whole book of Pentateuch? And if your burden becomes my burden, then I can say, we got it done. When your burden becomes mine, I now understand what the law of God is all about. Now, it's interesting, the language. Bear one another's burdens. The word burden there is a word which means heavy loads. And the word bear is, you've taken it on yourself. It's the strongest word in the Old Testament for what Jesus did on the cross is the Hebrew word, bear. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God. Why? Because we deserve the strickenness and the smittenness. 
so he has taken our place, and he has taken our burden. And so we don't know how to translate the Hebrew word nasah, bear. It's oftentimes translated simply forgive, with the sense of restoring a relationship. Because if he bears our burden, if he bears our circumstances, our situation changes. Now, that's what I think is identification. Now, uh, he's closing another epistle, the Ephesians. He's already told the Romans to imitate Christ. And in Galatians, he tells us to live in the Spirit. And now, he says, we'll just round it out. Imitate God. (laughs) Now, how do you imitate God? You live in love. And how do you find love? As Christ also loved us and sacrificed himself for us. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Live in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Do you know what the word sacrifice means? The F-I-C-E comes from a Latin word for to make. You get factory out of it in English. And the sacra part is uh, for holy. A sacrifice is something that makes something holy. I think what he is saying, imitate God. How does God love? He gives himself. The father, the best thing he's got is his son. And the son gives his life. And then the son gives the spirit. And then the son and the spirit give to us the church. And they give to us the scripture. And they give to us a Charles Calvin. They give to us someone else that's the means. Because the key to all of us is in somebody else. Now, if that's so, I need to be concerned about whose keys are inside me. And that's the reason the fulfillment of the law is other-oriented, self-sacrificing, love. And that's our business in the world. The world's need is OMS's business. And it's our business to take the world's burden and bear it. And as we bear it, the possibilities develop for others.